Welcome to Professor Charlene Hesbiber's podcast series. In our fifth podcast about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, she talks about the women in her study with a family history of cancer who opt for surveillance to see if cancer develops or if they have the BRCA gene and what waiting and watching means for them. Almost 20% of the women in my study already were diagnosed with cancer and then got tested. So for them, waiting for cancer to come already came. They needed to get consultation about what to do with their condition and begin to look at some surgical options. If they could do surveillance, many of them couldn't with cancer already there. So if we leave those women out and we take the 80% that are not diagnosed with cancer, we have a complex decision-making process. So for these women, presumably they're sat down and the main thing they're told is the risk they have of developing some form of cancer. Is that right? These medical providers are the front line in explaining the meaning of what risk is, BRCA risk is. Very often the doctor or the geneticist or both will recommend a course for them that either would consider surgery or waiting and watching. The idea here is that the patient will understand the risk and will follow whatever it is that they're told. I wonder if you can explain a little bit about how the risk of developing breast cancer or ovarian cancer is actually calculated. It's calculated on a medical risk assessment model. It's, it's a statistical model based on large population samples. This medical risk usually comes up with one number. It's sort of a one-size-fits-all risk. There's little questioning in the literature, for example, on just, you know, how problematic that risk might be. Because as we know, these larger population models sometimes contain smokers, they contain people that are not that healthy. So they don't take into account, say, your particular situation. You may not be a smoker, you live healthfully. In general, when women hear this, risk. It sounds so high. But most women don't really understand what that means. For most of them, they think, oh my God, it's really high. I guess I'm, I'm going to die. So they don't assess what that number is. It's presented by their physician in a way that for many women is a death sentence. They don't necessarily understand how to unpack that. What can you tell us about the sorts of women that do elect for surveillance? In general, in my sample, about uh, 20% of the women elect surveillance. On the average, they're about 35 and younger. So they're, they're a younger group of women. Also, they don't have the experience of any close relatives having died from cancer. And I think because they're relatively young and also usually not married or having children, they also feel they have time to wait to reach other milestones in their life, like getting married, going to school and getting a degree. And most of the women also feel uh, time is on their side, even those that know they're BRCA positive. Very often they come from families already that have a high cancer history, especially breast, ovarian cancer. And if their mother hasn't died and she's had cancer and she's older, they kind of look at that family tree a little bit. And while they don't necessarily 
exactly make decisions looking at their tree. They kind of use that as a guide. Now, Kelsey is a very good example of that, isn't she? Although she does have surgery at the back of her mind. Kelsey, a woman who elected surveillance first, young woman uh, with the characteristics I described, said that she found comfort in using her mother's experience to guide her. Uh, as she thought about how she was going to face her cancer risk. Um, And she says that she's planning ahead to do a prophylactic mastectomy. And she wants to actually do it before she's 30 because she knows, you know, her mother didn't die, but she knows that she wants to do it a little bit earlier than when her mother got cancer. So it somehow or other, these family trees are, are taken into account. So being younger is a key factor associated with the decision to elect for surveillance rather than surgery immediately. The fact that they're young, the fact that they're, you know, not married, don't have children, especially if they're thinking of having children, there, there is this sense that they have some time for deciding. They do elect surveillance and surveillance, they practice it pretty religiously. And so they feel empowered in this category when they have some control over their waiting. Waiting is really a strategy that they use to deal with the other things they want to do in their lives. And lots of these women know they're probably BRCA positive. But even many of these women, uh, long before they get tested, kind of assume they're BRCA positive given their history. And it's interesting once they get tested, it's usually when they have sur- when they have made the decision to get surgery. So they wait and watch and even wait on the test because for them, taking that test is sort of at proof. <laughs> even though they know somehow or other, if they get that test back, they think that's going to mean that I have to have surgery. So it's a it's kind of an interesting situation. What about, though, as women start to approach the age maybe where their mother got cancer and their family history is starting to perhaps come to the front of their minds again? They feel sometimes uh, that they may be playing Russian roulette too much. They're feeling like, I need to start thinking about this. Uh, it's always sort of in the back of their mind. So it's, it's sort of like this waiting game that's the clock is ticking more and more. So you're, you're really trying to balance your history with your life, you know, with, with getting on with living. And it's not about <laughs> Bracket. It's about what do I want to do with my young life right now? Uh, so I think it's, it's this fine balance that uh, between surveillance and the thought of what, what lies ahead. When they have accomplished some of the goals in their lives regarding their work and family goals, and they feel, you know, it's time, uh, I need to get my ovaries out, I need to really think about uh, preventative breast surgery, I want to be around for my family. So lots of the women in surveillance now will move towards that surgical route. And some, of course, move to it quicker because they get cancer. So it's, that's where it, that's that fine line, you know, how long can I wait before something happens? And your view is that these factors are not necessarily the sorts of things that medical professionals are taking into account when 
offering support and guidance? They would give advice that have protocols that look at your age maybe and see the severity of cancer in your family. And the assumption is, you know, you'll use this medical model to make decisions. And very often the thing to realize is that women's decision-making is a nexus that is surrounded by a network of family, friends, internet sites that they gather information from. And it's their feeling when they're ready, they will get it done. And very often when that decision is taken away from them, they either get cancer, they have a a lump, or they have some kind of issue, Uh, someone notices something on a mammogram, it might be enough to push them uh, unwillingly into surgery. So again, even the way in which women approach surveillance and moving into surgery, the more control they have, the more empowered they feel. Natalie's another very good example of that, isn't she? She's 28 years old, she's single, and she tested positive uh, for the BRCA mutation about six months before I interviewed her. And she is really upfront about how she's basing what to do on her decisions, for example, about prevention, directly on her mother's experience. Uh, Her mother was first diagnosed with breast cancer at 31. And so as Natalie says to me, she's, quote, planning to do the prophylactic mastectomy before she's 30. Originally, she was tested only because her mother was diagnosed with cancer for a second time. And because she has such a close relationship with her mother, she finds comfort, she says, in using her mother's experience as a guide to help fight cancer successfully. You begin at this point in the book to talk a lot more about empowerment, which is uh, an interesting theme, I think it's fair to say, in, in your, that runs throughout your book. And indeed, those people who feel disempowered by the process. Surveillance as a choice is empowering when women feel that they have chosen that route. And very often, what determines whether they feel empowered is also filtered again by how much support they get from family and friends for that decision, how informed they feel. Olivia had very little history of BRCA in her family. Her grandfather had breast cancer. And it's interesting that in interviewing her, one of the things she mentions is, you know, time is on my side. She learned that she was BRCA positive. She waited a year before she got tested. She was getting her PhD. She had her whole life before her. She didn't want to launch right away into prophylactic measures. No one in her family died from cancer. Her grandfather's experience with cancer seemed pretty mild to her. She says, I feel like embracing what's going to happen, accepting risks and not altering my body so dramatically is another way I can be empowered. I think it's very brave to go through the surgery. I don't think I'm fearful of surgery. I really don't think that's the reason. I think the largest part is that I don't feel that I want to take such drastic measures to alter my health path. I'm healthy now. I think that we do a lot of things in our lives that change our risk of life and death. And I think I'm just accepting that this is my body. I'm going to be healthy and behave healthfully and not do anything to shorten my life, but I'm not going to, at the same time, drastically alter my body. So in some ways, you know, she's accepting risk 
She doesn't like, quote, removing body parts. June's decision to watch and wait was was taken out of her hands slightly, not by medical professionals, but by her own family and, and cultural traditions. June always described herself as the sick one in the family. Everyone else was healthy. She was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at a very young age, and she's always struggled with that illness. It was only when a doctor said to her one day that, well, you know, Crohn's could be related to other forms of cancer. And that was in her early 20s. And it wasn't until 26 that June really, really started struggling with the fear of having the BRCA mutation. And she couldn't really share this very much with her family. They didn't want to know about it. She found out that there was a family history of cancer among her relatives still in China. So that got her even more alarmed. But yet her family would say, why would you want to do this? You can get things taken care of after you get cancer. And so she felt so alone, but yet she didn't feel strong enough to go against the family's basic philosophy of fatalism, as she calls it. And so there was this huge conflict. And June really said to me, I'm so alone and I I don't feel strong enough. She said, I have to do this by myself. Now, presumably ongoing surveillance is a given for the majority of women who test positive for the gene. It would seem crazy for it not to be. But what are the key motivators for considering surgery? Very often, women launch into preventative surgery pretty quickly. And those women, for example, who are married and have children and are already, you know, a little bit older, they're more likely to get surgery quicker. The mean age in my sample of of those women who elect surgery is 41 years of age. And those women who elect surveillance, the mean age is around 35. One of the interesting things to look in that category of women who are quicker to have surgery, and I could say less than a year from diagnosis, is that they had usually a mother or a sibling or parent who died of cancer. And so the risk is so heightened for them. What would you say their stories tell us about what can make a woman make that switch from surveillance to surgery? Having the support of those around you for the decision that you make, whether it's surveillance or surgery, knowing a little bit that someone's on your side, that you're not doing this by yourself. And I think for June, that piece was so missing from her life that it just disempowered her tremendously. Charlene Hespiber was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In our next podcast, Professor Hespiber talks more about the women in her study who opt for the surgical fix, how they make the decision to undergo surgery, and the impact it has on their lives. <laughs>